A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Hi, my name is Sarah Collette, and I'm here with the Thoughtful Faith Podcast, and I am joined today by Rebecca and Chase. Uh, for the sake of this podcast, we won't be giving their last name. We are going to be discussing a topic that is sensitive in nature, and for the sake of their loved ones, they have asked that this podcast remain anonymous. But I want to welcome both of them to a Thoughtful Faith. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Thank you. I guess I want to start by having you introduce yourselves a little bit. Uh, give us some, some details so we can get to know you. Okay. Um, we have been married for six years. We knew each other for several years before that in high school and uh, afterward. Um, we have three children and we generally have a, a good open communication and relationship and and uh, have always been able to discuss things with each other, both in our family and with our faith and life in general. Before we got married, we made the sort of, uh, I guess, oblivious promise to each other that we would always be honest and communicate through whatever problems may come. And of course, when you're engaged, you have no real notion of trauma ever truly striking. You know, in theory it will, but you don't ever believe it will really happen. But we promised that we would work through those things honestly and openly with each other. And that has come in handy. Um, let's just start talk about, um, your faith. You are LDS and give us a history of, um, your lives in relationship to Mormonism. Well, I was raised very, very Mormon. <laughs> um, in fact, that has been a, a fun thing for us to see how, even though we were both raised in the church, how very differently you can be raised in the church. I was raised in the, we read scriptures every single night and we had a very strict set of Sunday observance rules and, um, gospel discussion and conversation was very normal in our home, very comforting, very, um, it was a family thing. We did it together. I was not. My, my family was much different in that we were active Latter-day Saints and that we went to church every Sunday, unless there was a family reunion on, of course. Um, but we did not have regular scripture study or even family prayer. Um, we did attempt to read the scriptures together probably about five main times in my childhood, you know, around the dinner table or the breakfast table or something. 
and we would usually give it a good go for about a week or two. <laughs> or sometimes I think once we made it to second Nephi and that was about, <laughs> about it. But, um, we, like I say, we were active Latter-day Saints and my parents held callings. Um, we went to church, but I don't think for any of us as children or even my parents, doctrine wasn't a big thing. It wasn't an issue. It wasn't something we discussed. It wasn't something that we studied. It wasn't something that my parents really cared much about as far as I'm aware. Um, We've kind of talked about it being like a, you guys were very socially Mormon. Sure. And for us, it penetrated much more than on a societal level. It was deep. (laughs) You were doctrinally Mormon. Yes. At a certain point, did you develop an interest in that or do you still are you still kind of generally disinterested in doctrine or was that never your character i'm a little of both in high school and seminary i did develop an interest not so much well so in high school i developed an interest in church as as a bit more than than a social activity um both through seminary teachers who were good and inspiring and made me want to develop a testimony in in God and and in the Book of Mormon. Um and in good from good friends who who got me interested more in doctrinal things. Um and from going on going on exchanges extensively with missionaries, um, which got me interested in helping other people and serving other people from a Christ-like standpoint. And, um, so through, through those experiences, I became more doctrinally and spiritually involved in faith in general, faith in God, faith in Christ and faith in the church than I ever had in the past. And then as far as I'm aware, anyone else in my family had at that point. Um, and that continued on through, through my mission it sounds like your families were very different. How did you feel about the nature of their relationship to the church, their feelings about the gospel and spirituality in general? Was it easy to take in or did you feel, or did you struggle with that? It was mixed. It was very mixed because at that point I was very comfortable with my relationship with God and my testimony in, in, of God, of Christ, of the church. And it was very much based on, I knew that my family's approach was not enough for me. It wasn't what I wanted. Um, it was, it wasn't real enough for me. Then on the, on the opposite side of that, my wife's family, it was too much for me. It was, it was, um, more than I could handle. It was more than I wanted to handle. Um, I didn't find interest in when I would, stay at my wife's house late with her family, just visiting and things. Um, when we were dating and engaged, her family would have these drawn out discussions about doctrine. And I, I participated somewhat, but, and I think her dad really enjoyed trying to engage me in that. And I would give my opinions, but I really didn't find any sort of real satisfaction from it. And so so I had, I had found what worked for me and I was comfortable there and I knew that my family's wasn't enough. 
hers was too much. And so I was just kind of, I was, I accepted her for who she was and I admired who she was and how she valued it. And that was good. That was good enough for me. When did, when did your involvement with your spiritual, um, relationship to the church begin? Oh, I don't ever remember there being a time when I didn't feel that I had a, or that I didn't have a spiritual relationship. Um, and it was somewhat separate from the church. I would say, I remember when I remember when I was probably as young as four having what I called or still call my first spiritual experience. I was in the bathtub. Um, and I was just had my hands, you know, intertwined in front of me. I was just laying on my belly in the bath and I said a prayer and I remember it being a very holy experience. And, um, I told my dad about it because he was sort of the authority on spirituality and he was sort of a spiritual mentor to me. Um, and he toted me up the next Sunday up, up to the pulpit <laughs> for sacrament or fast and testimony meeting and had me bear my first testimony of my first spiritual experience, which, um, do you remember what you said? The only thing I remember saying was my dad telling me where he whispered in my ear for what, for, you know, he coached me what I was supposed to say, I guess. And, um, I just remember the first thing I said was I was in the bathtub. <laughs> I don't remember the rest, <laughs> but I mean, so that was the beginning of it, but I mean, it's prayer. It was always sort of understood in my home that you were entitled to talk to God and ask him questions about your life and ask for help with things. And, um, so always, I guess, I mean, you know, when I, of course, when I left home and sort of went out on my own, I, it became a very important thing to me. You know, I had carried with me the habits of daily scripture study and, um, you know, prayer and, I mean, I would say I became even more spiritual after I left home than I was when I was in home, simply, I guess, as a means of coping with the real world and finding my way. Did you ever think about the possibility of faith crisis? Oh, it was something that I never, ever thought of in terms of myself. I always looked at other people having faith crises and feeling so sorry for them and, you know, just feeling pretty comfortable that, I mean, I just, I just don't think it ever occurred to me that I would myself go through something like that. And I remember feeling very scared of it, that it was a very scary sort of dark and bad thing. Right. When you say it was scary, do you mean in terms of you were scared for them or you felt as though that was some kind of a threat to you, that it scared you in your own sphere. Well, I don't know that when you're not, I, I don't know that I was in a position to analyze why it scared me. I think I scared, it scared me at the possibility of someone leaving the church or it scared me that, you know, they, that they might be lost in some way, you know, I think that's why I would have said it was scary, but I think, you know, in everyone, in everyone who has faith, there is this 
seed of insecurity. And, and you like to be surrounded by people who make you feel more secure. And, and when you're around people who make you feel less secure, that I think that little tiny part of you f- is very vulnerable. And, and so I, now I can see that, yes, that was there. It's always there. And I think it's there for everyone. Um, but I just didn't have the ability to s- tell what it was at that point. I think for me, like in a similar situation where when you see other people having these crises, it, as a youth, for me, it was scary both in that for them, because you fear for their outcome, their well-being, their eternal salvation or whatever. But for the most part, it is kind of that fear, that little insecurity, um, unsurety of, of what will happen to you because of it or, or, or how it affects you in the long term. At this point, I want um, Rebecca to tell a little bit about her father from the perspective of how you felt about him um, growing up, some of your feelings and experiences with your father, um, who obviously will be a large part of this, um, the topic of this podcast. Okay, so I already explain that he was sort of the spiritual giant of the family. He was the one who made scripture study happen every night. And he was very, uh, spiritual things were his forte. Um, you know, if we needed to talk about something, we went to my mom or if we had a problem with some issue in our day-to-day living, it was my mom we went to, but you know, if we sort of needed I had a spiritual question or whatever, we would go to my dad and, and, you know, those kinds of things don't come up very often. (laughs) Um, but when they did, it was, it was, you know, he was dependable and he would always give his father's blessings and things like that. And, and he was a very kind and safe person. You know, I had a, I felt very, I felt comfortable around him. He's, he's very boyish, fun, kind, dad. He was very fun when we were kids, but he was fairly detached as far as what was going on in our lives. I don't think he knew. I don't know that he cared. It was, you know, if we wanted some to do something with him, we had to initiate it, you know, like we had to go to him and, and meet him on his terms and, and, and things like that. But those were things that I didn't, that didn't bother me because my mom was very good at, discussion and and being aware of what was going on in our lives. And so, you know, I I had admiration for him. I had a fondness for him and he loves attention. He loves being sort of the center of attention. And so he would do things that would sort of embarrass me all growing up, especially at church. He would just sing so loud during the hymns, embarrassingly loud. I mean, this was a source of mortification all growing up, how loud my dad would sing. And he would just answer so many questions in Sunday school. He would bear his testimony every single, he just loves the spiritual attention. And every single time a bishopric would change or whatever, his hopes would just be rallied. You could see it. And, um, and then he would just be totally dejected and let down when, you know, he wasn't called to be a bishop. Did you actually, were you cognizant of that at a young age? Absolutely. 
It was it was so plain. It was so obvious. There was no subtlety in it in the slightest. I was aware from a very young age that my dad aspired <laughs> to be a bishop or some sort of spiritual leader. Did he speak to you about his spiritual life? Did he communicate his own feelings and his own testimony? Or did he let you communicate and then just give you feedback? Oh, it was very much, he was, it was a role of he was the one who knew what he was talking about. It wasn't a discussion so much as a lecture, if that makes sense. Like he would tell us everything he knew. And he, of course, knew everything. And we sort of depended on him to have read the scriptures very carefully and prayed for hours and hours about, about, you know, the subject of the scriptures or whatever. So, I mean, it was, it was, it was, I think, a form of, I mean, I, I, he just has this strong need to have attention and especially on spiritual matters. It was very important to him to give a, an impression of intelligence and, and having a grasp on, on, you know, the spiritual pulse of the world and, mm-hmm. and, and from my experience coming into the family, it was any sort of discussion like that would hinge on the discussion would only end or go somewhere progressive. If you told him what he wanted to hear or accepted his point of view or perspective or his testimony, and you couldn't really argue with it or, or debate it at all because he had prayed for hours and studied so much. And so it was something that was not really up for debate or discussion. It was how it was. You know. So he held the moral high card. Oh, always, Absolutely. always. He, he would never throw it in your face, obviously, but it was just sort of by... Always there. It was always there, sort of. Yes. Okay. He'd spent a lot of time, you know, on his knees. And so he's clearly the expert in the room now. Okay. So when I was about 11 years old, thereabouts, there was sort of this awful mystery thing that happened where my mom just started to be super depressed and we were all homeschooled. And so we didn't go to school. We were home all day, sort of marinating in this sad aura that was just lingering in our home. And it was very obvious that something was wrong. Although of course, neither of my parents were communicating anything to us. My mom would just look like grieved all the time and just not chatty, quiet, withdrawn. And one day I found her journal in the fire, (laughs) in the fireplace, all the pages had been torn out and burned in the, in the cover too. And so I knew something sadder than I even could had the context to, you know, put in place had happened. And sure enough, one night my dad, we sort of had a family home evening where my dad confessed quote unquote (laughs) what had happened, which he didn't tell us anything. Basically we found out that he'd been disfellowshipped from the church and he said, well, mama's been really sad and it's because she thinks that I betrayed her and I did betray her. <laughs> and his wording of that has struck me as hilarious. So I just, I, something bad had happened and we didn't really know. We kind of knew it involved another woman. We just didn't have any sort of where to stick this. We didn't have any way to talk about it. We didn't know what it was. And so it was just this black mark on my childhood, this 
horrible trauma where I knew that my parents' marriage was in trouble. And at that point, the saddest thing I could imagine ever happening to me was my parents divorcing. And, and so I remember the next day working up the courage to ask my mom, mom, are you and dad going to get a divorce? And, and she said, no, but if this ever happens again, yes. And I just knew it would never happen again because, because my dad, you know, wasn't taking the sacrament. And that was a huge, huge, you know, tragedy, especially for someone like him. And I just saw, you know, him looking so sad. And, and so I knew that it would just never happen again. And I knew that we would work through it and that everything would be fine. And for all I knew, everything was fine. <laughs> um, so but, wait, this happened when you were 11 mm -hmm. and how old are you now? I'm 27. So it's been, it's been 16 years. Yeah. Um, we just found out this last January that, well, my mom sent this very cryptic email, <laughs> you know, kind of explaining that maybe something horrible was about to happen, but she, it wasn't her story to tell. So, you know, she's just sort of giving us the heads up, which was almost so cryptic that we really truly didn't get anything out of it. I had to call her and be like, mom, what's going on? And then she's like, well, it's, it's, you're going to get an email from your father. And I'm, that's all I'm going to say. So <laughs> we got an email from my dad and he had been excommunicated. Um, but at that point it was no, it didn't surprise me. I had sort of wasn't going to stand for this, you know, surprise element of this. And so I kind of winkled it out of my mom. She didn't say it, but I knew I had known for years that there was more going on there than, than we were being told. And so I, it didn't come as a complete surprise when, when he did send us the email, but you told me that you had an experience with, um, about your dad in church in the context of a lesson that was given at church. I want you to share that experience if you don't mind. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, soon after we got married, I, I think that's when things really started to stop being so under, undercover and they started to kind of surface and, but I wasn't in a position to properly notice it because I was, had just started this new chapter of my life with my husband. And I think I was too distracted to honeymooning to even see what was going on. But my dad sort of out of nowhere received this revelation one letter at a time. I found, I found out he prayed and God gave him the name of a small town in the middle of nowhere, one letter at a time that that was where he was supposed to go. That's his, how the story came out and such a striking story. We were just all sort of like, okay. And away they moved. Um, but the thing is he had no job and he, he had no job where he, he, where, the town we had been living in, he was a doctor. And, and so he was just sort of walking away from that. Although once again, I don't know. I mean, we didn't know all the details at the time. So from our perspective, he was leaving his job and taking my mom and my two youngest sisters who were still living at home and moving to this tiny town with no home, no job, they were, they lived in a tiny little camp trailer with no power, no heat in, in this tiny, cold little town. They were living off of canned food 
And of course, I know all of this now. At the time, they were very, very, my mom just, I think, was in this, I don't know, place where she just could not be forthcoming about what was going on because I don't think she could believe it herself. So, but those were the facts. And so we were just kind of like, what, what are they doing down there? You know, that's really weird. But it was then that, you know, I sort of started to have this crazy, you know, this thing in the back of my mind, like what, what is personal revelation? Like what, what does this mean? You know, that, that God told him to do this totally reckless thing. Like there's got to be some something good coming to them because I just can't, you know, see it. And, and it was just little things like that, that I was starting to put together. And anyway, uh, very recently, I would say probably right around the same time that we got this, you know, we got this cryptic email from my mother saying that, you know, bad news was coming and that we needed to, you know, be aware that something was going to happen. Um, I went to church and I had this uh, experience where the lesson was about Joseph Smith. And, you know, I'd had a lot of work my whole life. You know, I had the chore, I guess, of doing all this sort of mental gymnastics, trying to make everything Joseph Smith did look good, which, you know, is fairly easy when you just read the manuals in church and, and, and because, you know, it's all pretty squeaky clean and there's nothing controversial in there at all, really. Well, besides the very nature of the story, which is controversial that, you know, he prayed and saw God, the father and Jesus Christ, I guess that is pretty controversial, but, um, you know, not, not Not to to a Mormon, right. Not to a Mormon who's been brought up, you know, with that story being a staple. Um, and the teacher was teaching about Joseph Smith and, and, you know, I don't, I still to this day haven't done any extensive homework on Joseph Smith. I haven't read anything really pro or con, which I guess I'll explain in more in depth. We had this lesson in, in Relief Society about Joseph Smith and the teacher said something like she read the quote from the Doctrine and Covenants where, Joseph Smith says something like, and I'm going, you know, like a, I'm going like a lamb to the slaughter, but my conscience is completely clear before God. I know that I have, you know, nothing, I'm paraphrasing grossly here, but I have nothing that is dragging me down. My conscience is clear. And the teacher sort of looked up at us with this sort of smarmy look on her face and was like, we all should aspire to be in a position where we can say that our conscience is completely clear before God. And I just had this moment of, I just thought, you know, that reminds me of something my dad would say. I think you, in order to say something like that, you have to be a person who's either very, very good or not very self-aware. And I just thought, you know, my dad would say something like that. And then it clicked to me. I was like, Oh, my dad is kind of like Joseph Smith. And, and I, and I, and I thought, well, that's fine. But basically it freed me from this. Joseph Smith was a perfect person. And I'm going to have to work really, really hard to make that work in my mind. I'm going to have to disregard all kinds of things. And, and I mean, and not just like, the dirty stuff that, you know, you have to look hard to find. But I mean, even just polygamy, even just, 
um, uprooting his family time after time and, and, and stuff that's in the doctrine and covenants, you know, stuff that we have ready access to and, and that, you know, it's not very hard to find. I just thought, you know, a lot of that stuff would be very hurtful because I was thinking about my dad dragging my family down to this godforsaken town. And I thought somebody's heart was broken in there. And, and that would weigh on most people's conscience if they had broken somebody's heart, but, but not somebody like my dad. You know, I had this moment where I realized, okay, my dad did something that I don't agree with. And, but I, I still believe he's a good person. At this point, I didn't, you know, he hadn't been excommunicated. He just had made this crazy chess move down to this tiny little town. And I thought, all right, he's not a bad person, but he's not a very self-aware person. And it allowed me the freedom to be like, okay, maybe Joseph Smith was the same way. A mixed bag, a person who perhaps wasn't all good or all bad, just like my dad. And it, and it, it was only the beginning then, you know, I was just suddenly okay with it. If it wasn't all perfect, if it wasn't all a clear conscience that he was declaring, I thought, well, I'm sure Emma would tell a different story. I'm sure everyone who you would talk to would tell a different story and that's okay. It's okay with me if I hear different stories. And so I guess the beginning, the very, very beginning of my spiritual journey came at this moment in church where I, I thought, he doesn't have to be perfect. He's like my dad, who is by and large a good person. And over, you know, I think the good outweighs the bad, but nobody is all one way or the other. And so allowing myself that freedom to sort of say, hey, I don't have to work so hard to make Joseph Smith a perfect person in my mind. I don't have to justify every little thing he did um, in order to have faith in him. And in fact, I have more faith in Joseph Smith now when I am have sort of let go of that idea that he had to be a perfect person or that I have to make everything he did work. I'm going to ask the question um, to Chase. Do you, how did you feel when your wife's father took his family down to a small town in the middle of nowhere? What was your, what were your thoughts and your perspective? My initial reaction was, subconsciously was a lot of bad words. Um, I, I just thought you've got to be kidding me. Um, this guy is giving up a good income, a job that can potentially get his family out of debt, especially now that there's only a couple of children at home. He is, he is leaving behind a community that has, accepted him for who he is despite his quirks and and different nature to what this community is used to um he he's leaving behind so much and putting his family in such a vulnerable horrible situation um and i just thought he was absolutely nuts he he described it as revelation and so as discussed before you can't argue with with my wife's father when it comes to spiritual matters, because he is the one who has read and prayed extensively. And so he's not to be trifled with. 
but uh but I knew it was nuts and and my wife and I talked about that about how we we didn't know how to approach the situation because we knew it was wrong we knew it was a bad idea <laughs> we knew that it would be a bad situation for their family but we did not know how to approach any of them about it we we did try if i remember correctly talking to her mother about different things but her mother was in such a i, I don't even know how to describe it a victimized state for lack I of a better term survival she and, was in yeah. survival mode yeah definitely we, we also didn't know hardly anything they were so secretive about the way things were like we didn't we didn't know how dire the situation was. Okay, so at this point, what was the situation? I, I, is this an appropriate time to to kind of delve in? This is where we have to come back to the email my dad sent us, the excommunication. We found out, well, my dad confessed once again. It was like this revisitation of the, my 11-year-old self. There was this very vague confession of, he confessed to being excommunicated and in his mind that was what was wrong with the situation. That was the big sin was the excommunication. <clears throat> when you say that, you mean he, he was confessing to the sin of being excommunicated. Yes. Okay. Exactly. exactly. And he apologized for the shame we must be feeling. And he didn't mention a single thing about why he had been excommunicated what he had done and why, what the consequences were. And if you take that in the context of this person who, who aspires to be the bishop because he's so spiritually, whatever, <laughs> um, to have to be excommunicated is the ultimate absolute shame. And so he thought, surely we must be feeling that shame when really that wasn't the issue at all for, for his family. It wasn't it at all. We were wondering, why was he excommunicated? What was the issue at hand? So we didn't find that. Well, I mean, we, we knew we'd kind of pieced together this idea. It wasn't very hard to guess. Yeah. It wasn't very hard to guess with his hero's complex, his love of attention, his love of being this mentor figure. Um, and we had known that there had been another woman in my childhood. So we had kind of guessed you know, that this involved, this was a sort of an adultery situation. We didn't know to what extent. So all of my siblings, well, we all got together and we knew my mom was coming to town. And so we kind of forced her into a full disclosure. We just thought, okay, it's been enough years of half truths and covering dad. And you, you know, you need to just tell us everything. So she did. And we found out in sort of one fell swoop that he'd been having an affair for three years, but we found out it wasn't just her, that he had had serial affairs pretty much my entire life. Um, just one woman after the other, he just fell in love and, and they weren't, I mean, they weren't all to the same extent as, you know, as some of the others. He had four, I think, full blown sexual drawn out affairs. Um, but count like how many do you remember in the twenties? Yeah. 20 plus women that he had had affairs with. I mean, relationships on some level, yeah. we don't know exactly all the extent. Of all yeah. Of. Um, 
But anyway, just he'd been disloyal over and over again. I mean, even when, you know, and it was just this one isolated event um, that we found out about, sort of, he got sort of the slap on the wrist of the disfellowshipment. disfellowshipment. So how we found out um, the, the nature of these affairs or how he had justified them in his mind was that same night we had sort of cornered my mother and made her tell us everything, um, you know, that she sort of had my dad confess to her once he'd been excommunicated. Um, we found he had, he's a dedicated journal writer and he keeps it on his computer, but he had lost his flash drive at Christmas, you know, about a month prior to this. And he was freaking out trying to find this flash drive. And now I know why. Um, and so we found it in the yard in my, at my brother's house. Totally by coincidence. It just happened to be this evening when we had just had this discussion. We walked outside to get some fresh air and we found this flash drive. And we all knew immediately what it was. <laughs> and uh, we took it home, home with us. And I plugged it into my husband's computer and I pulled up one file <laughs> and read what was in it. And immediately knew that my life would never be the same. The content of the one journal entry I read, it wasn't exactly a journal entry in the traditional sense. It was more, it read very much like the Doctrine and Covenants. It was a conversation between my dad and Christ. It was, it was almost like reading the, a play. It had a line labeled with my father's name and a question or a statement. And then below that, Christ and his answer or statement. And it was shocking and it was troubling because, well, you can imagine it was troubling. Um, but the, with regards to what I read, it was about, um, it was, came from that little interim of time when they were living in this little trailer in a small town with no, you know, income, no proper food, no plumbing, no heat in the dead of winter. Um, it, it was a, I guess, a prayer from that time of my dad's life. And, um, Christ told him in this dialogue, dialogue, <laughs> that an angel was going to come. I think the angel Moroni himself and was going to lead my father to a cave wherein was hidden $69 million. And at that point, I could not read anymore. I knew that I knew if I read more that I would crumble up and just wish I was dead. So obviously I think to anyone listening, um, the implications of this experience would be drastic in their nature in reference to your faith um, from a Mormon perspective and having um, had an experience where you relate Joseph Smith to your father. Um, did it immediately strike you what the implications were or did that take some time? Yeah, uh, I think for me, at least, I, I did read more than my wife did. I, I continued on and I, I discovered that just some of the, 
for lack of a better term, inspiration that was behind some of the, the things that we would hear and, and, and he would try to get us to be a part of throughout their, their time in this small town. Um, and as I, as I went through that, uh, I, I realized immediately the, the parallels between the things that he was experiencing and the things that Joseph Smith had experienced. And, and my conflict personally was, what is the difference? I know there is a difference, but I don't know what it is exactly. I've grown up my entire life believing in Joseph Smith as a prophet, even if somewhat unsure of the details. Um, and so I didn't know how to create a, a, a distinction between the two, um, with, with my father-in-law, I'd always thought, I'd always known that something was not right with him. I, I had always felt it. I'd always just known it. I had always even discussed it with my wife. And this was obviously evidence of that. But at the same time, this, this dialogue he was having with Christ in a way read more clearly and more, um, more sensical in some ways than the Doctrine and Covenants even. And so I was trying to figure out quickly over, this was all within one evening, you know, overnight, I was trying to figure out how one man can be led by God and given scripture and, and revelation that, that is good. And another man go through what he believes to be the exact same experiences, but they not be inspiration or they not be of God. And I did not know how on earth that worked and how to put it all together in my mind. And so immediately for me, I, I, I knew there was something amiss. I know that the idea that your father is similar to Joseph Smith will be offensive to many people who feel strongly about Joseph Smith as the restoration prophet and of course, by no means do we mean this to be offensive, but um, can you just say why why is it possible for you to equate the two in light of the fact that you're, you had just found out that your father was doing this devious thing? Um. First, I feel like I should throw in the, Go ahead. um, caveat that, of course, the relationships that my dad had been cultivating all these years were justified because of polygamy, which was, of course, information that found out reading those journals that night. It was pretty obvious to me after that night that I was going to have a crisis of faith, for lack of a better word, for what I was going to undergo. I knew that there was no way I was just going to go to bed, say my prayers and wake up the next morning going on my life the same way. And you either would have to go through it or postpone it. Um, because that night my husband read all about how these relationships that my father had been pursuing, you know, extramaritally were of course justified by polygamy because these women belonged to him in the eternities. They were his, and I don't understand what doctrine he's come up with to make that one make sense. Um, but of course he had polygamy handed to him and 
Uh, and so I knew that that was something I was going to have to deal with the whole idea of personal revelation. It was obvious right from the, right from the onslaught, but from reading those journals, um, what was going to happen. And I think a coping mechanism was just to shut down as far as any sort of relationship with God went. I think I even prepped him for it. I, I think I knelt down and prayed and said, I'm going to need some space from you. <laughs> You'll have to just excuse me for a little while. I am don't know what the heck's going on right now. And sort of took uh, the time I needed to sort this out. And I'm still doing that to a certain extent, although I have started to pray again. Um, I think what has helped me work through it was that experience I had right, right before it started was that experience in relief society of seeing the parallel between them. Now I am just, I can only express that parallel through my eyes. It may not exist to other people, but because I know my father and I've grown up with him, it is my personal way of coming to terms with Joseph Smith. And like, my husband was saying, you know, how, how I, I had to ask the question, how can one man do all of these things and another man do all of the exact same things, you know, pursue extramarital relationships and receive revelations from God. And, you know, both of them did those things. How can both do that and one be okay and one be evil? And so I had to sort of ask those questions and I thought, well, how are any of us, I mean, like I think of myself as a good person, but I do lots of bad things. Everyone does. Everyone is, everyone is sort of mixed. We all, you know, are doing our best in general, but we all make selfish decisions. We all get confused. We all hurt other people. And what I think what I was having to go through as far as coping with what happened to my dad and the trauma of him being unfaithful to my mother and lying to us for so many years, I think having to deal with that, I was put faith sort of on hold. I was just like content to be in limbo for a little while there, but I was just needing to cope with the psychology of what had happened. And, um, I think doing that helped me spiritually as well because it was much of the same issues. Um, I think that, you know, trying to say, oh, my dad is a bad person. Look at all these things he did. Wasn't going to be a solution I could accept because I loved my dad. He was wonderful in so many ways. You know, all these childhood memories of him just playing with us and, you know, he was very imaginative and sort of creative storyteller and all of these things. And I see so much of myself in him. And rather than hating those parts of myself, you know, I want to embrace the part, the parts of me that he, that I inherited from him. And so I, I couldn't hate my father unless I was willing to hate myself or the hate the parts of me that were him. And, and I wasn't willing to do that. Besides, I don't think he's a villain. I think that he's a victim of life and circumstances, just like we all are. And so just as I would not want anyone to assume by any given experience they might have with me that might be negative, that I'm a bad person. I'm like, well, I can't 
throw the baby out with the bathwater. My dad gave me many, many wonderful things. And let, let me just ask, just so it's very clear, do you think that what he did was wrong? Do you believe that he had any revelation in respect to those things? Well, that's a complicated question because that would mean I would have to define his relationship with God. And I've become very gun shy of doing that. I, I reject his revelations if that's what they are because they cause hurt and pain to me and my family. And that's sort of the measuring stick that I've come up with is what my heart tells me. And I do the same thing with Joseph Smith now, which has made my life a lot easier because I'm doing no gymnastics. <laughs> um, You're going by your own conscience. By my own conscience and what I perceive as something hurtful or non-hurtful. Um, and so what I've done with my dad is I've just decided, okay, well, did that hurt me? Well, then... I, I reject that. But if it, if it was something that was a positive experience, then I'm going to hang on to that. I've kind of made two piles of, of things, you know, and I sort of realized, you know, as I was doing this, we were in therapy, we were going through this with my, with our therapist together. I realized that I was doing the same thing spiritually. I, I was sort of you know, that little part that I was talking about, that little seed, that shred of insecurity had grown to this huge monster. And once again, I was like, well, while I'm at it, I might as well address all these other things because I really wanted to find my feet. I really wanted to find a place of security again. And I knew it wouldn't be the same place of security, but I was determined at this point, now that I felt like I was coping with the emotional side of things, I was determined to come to a place of peace because this place of unknowing was no longer satisfactory. So I started to go through my testimony as well. Um, or not, I won't say the word testimony per se, but my knowledge of the gospel. And so I was looking at Joseph Smith, but also the whole gamut of, you know, Mormon topics, religious talk topics and, and God and, and Jesus Christ. And I just sort of put it all in front of me and I, and, and I'm still going through this process, of course, it's just, you know, this is a very recent event. And so it's going to take years to finish going through it all. But of the sorting process, this, does this cause me pain? Does this hurt me? Does this, is this something that I feel would be hurtful if I were to follow this or do this? And then I'm, I, 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 I'm not going to have that be a part of my life. Is this positive? Does this encourage love? Does it encourage kindness? Does this encourage Christ-like behavior? Um, service. Is this good in general? Yeah. Well, then I am going to hang on to that. And so this sorting process is sort of, I think, going to take years as I encounter things or as circumstances change. But at this point, um, I want to talk to you, Chase, and ask how, how did you immediately approach the conflict that arose? I mean, now that the conflict was there, how how did you go from there? It was very, is very tough. I, I had to try to figure out where lines were, if there were lines, um, between, you know, kind of the measuring stick, like my wife had spoken about that she came up with. Does, 
do these things hurt people? Um, some of the revelations that Joseph Smith received or that are recorded that we've, that I've read about and, you know, learned all of my life, they hurt people. They killed people. Um, and so trying to find where that line is for me was important. I, I had to know, I had to know where is it? And, and, and because I couldn't immediately find it, I, I thought of myself as a very all or nothing kind of guy. Like, um, if I'm having all of these sudden doubts about Joseph Smith because of his similarities to my father-in-law, if he's not real in some way, then he's not real at all. And if he's not real at all, then my entire faith in this church organization, the Book of Mormon, etc., is not real at all. And if my entire faith that I've based on my entire life in that organization as a representation of Christ is not real, then Christ is not real. And so, so I would keep following this line of, you know, what is it? it? Just the damage kept going on and on and on to where into the rabbit hole, into the rabbit hole. Exactly. If, if, if my father-in-law had these experiences and I know and feel that he is not a prophet of God or inspired of God to do them. And this man, Joseph Smith had the exact same experiences I can't honestly say to myself that I know he's a prophet of God anymore in every way. So therefore, because of that chain of events, I now am unsure if I believe in God, if I believe in Christ, if I believe in any of life after death, life after death, all of those principles that I've learned and thought I knew all of my life. Um, and I continually struggled with that, whereas my wife seemed to be quicker at coming to a, a she she seemed to be able to to be okay with accepting some things without others in people, both her father and and maybe that's where it comes from is because she knew and loved her father all of her life. She was okay with accepting those parts of him without accepting the bad parts. And therefore she was able to extend that same courtesy to Joseph Smith and et cetera. I was having a harder time with that. I was still all or nothing. I think what kept us going to church the past six months was habit. And we moved right after all this happened. And I think that made it harder in some ways and easier in some ways. Um, easier because none of these people we were now around in our new ward knew anything about us. There was no expectation. There was no standard. There was no callings. There was nothing to complicate anything. So we could just be ourselves. But the trouble was we didn't know who we were at this point. We didn't know. We didn't feel like we fit in exactly, but we didn't have anywhere else to go. We were just sort of these lost little lambs and we enjoyed partaking of the social aspect of church. And so we discovered that if nothing else, it was worth it to us to go to church simply for the community. For me, that was a temporary feeling. I was okay with oh, that. Well, for me too. Right. We were okay with that temporarily, but we knew that it couldn't last, that we had to work through some things and figure it out because, because we weren't satisfied with being that forever. 
So at this point, I just want to ask a question um, as a point of interest. This kind of um, trauma happens to people, faith crisis happens to people all the time. Very rarely, I've known many people that have experienced faith crisis. I have never known a story like this before. Um, Of course, you know, we read about you know, polygamists in the news here and there that think they are prophetic and, um, and we always kind of write them off as crazy. But I think I just want to, to know, um, did you, were you cognizant of the fact that these same feelings and emotions that you were having were similar to other people that had experienced faith crisis? For me, it took a little while for me to realize that it was similar to other people's experiences. Um, and the way it came about was realizing that the rest of my wife's family were going through the exact same thing. Her siblings and their spouses were feeling many of the exact same things we were. And before I knew that, I thought we were all alone. <laughs> I thought we were the only people who had ever gone through something like this. And... And, and there were no similarities, but once I realized that they were going through the same things and having the same feelings as us, that's when I started to, to expand that and realize that it was similar to many, many other experiences that weren't exactly the same, but, but had the same effect. I think for me, it was easy to see that my family was going through the same thing and we were really, really lonely but we were all lonely together. And so it drew us all close together. I think when I, it first hit me on what scale faith crisis can occur was when we actually went in and talked to our Bishop. We had been in the month, the ward for a couple months and we finally felt like we should go in and explain what was going on. And it was a hard thing because we didn't know what he would think of us. We didn't know, you know, what was going to happen. <laughs> Were we going to become a project? Were we going to become shunned or, or worse yet, not shunned? Were we going to become like, I guess, a project? <laughs> <laughs> and it, But we felt like we owed it to him as our bishop to know where we were coming from what our opinions were so that... Who we were. Who we were, really. Um, well, and also the bishopric had recently had, had just asked us to speak in sacrament meeting, and the topic was... What was it? Making the, temple making attendance temple a priority. Attendance, making temple attendance a priority, which for us at that moment, the temple and what we thought about the temple was far down the list of priorities in our faith experience at that moment. And so we felt we had to, and and we were both due for temple recommend renewals. (laughs) And so to honestly and, and to honestly address that topic to our ward members, we felt we had to first discuss with the Bishop who we were, what we were going through. And because of that, where we were at in our faith and in our belief so that then we could have an honest temple recommend interview and and 
determine whether or not we deserve to be in the temple at this time in our lives and, and whether or not we feel it is important or, or if we even think it's beneficial at all. Um, and then we could start to address that topic to, to, to give this talk. Um, and so this talk ended up being kind of a, a good catalyst for us to, to come to the bishop to explain ourselves and to introduce ourselves and where we were at. Uh, the whole experience was mind-blowing. We, I was coming, kind of wrapping up the whole crisis phase, and I was coming to a place of peace, at least function. Um, and so I really didn't know what to expect, but I was feeling pretty... I didn't have much left. Like, I didn't have any sure knowledge left, except for faith in God and in Christ. How many months after you found out I mean, what's the time frame? Okay, so we found out in January. This was May? June? June. June or July? June. 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 Yeah. So it had been about six months, I guess. Um, it's a relatively months. short amount of time, but yeah. it seemed like an eternity. Well, I've always been a person... You, you found out in February or May? January. Oh, January. January. Okay, sorry. I've always been a person who hated postponing... Yeah, we, we couldn't live like that. Gratification, we I guess. We couldn't live in such turmoil and it was hard. It was hard on us. It was hard on our kids, I think, to live with us. I guess they were yeah. marinating in our grief and our yeah. sadness as yeah. well, and I did not want to put them through that. So I was ready to just be done. Yeah, I, I was... I mean, it, and I was coming up with some workable solutions here. I'm still in the sorting process, but the sorting process works for me. And so I went to the bishop sort of almost defiant, because I didn't know what he was going to throw at us. I didn't know if yeah. he was going to take away our recommends or whatever. And But I had come to a place of peace. I've got my two little things I can bear my testimony about, you know. Which were? God and Jesus Christ. And it's not a sure knowledge, but it's a, a choice of faith. I'm, I'm choosing to believe in them because I... Uh, you have the God <laughs> I do. I'm a spiritual person. And I was never in any of this willing to give God up. I was willing to not talk to him, but I was not willing to say, I don't believe in you. To me, that would be silly. It would be like, well, I'm not your friend anymore. You know, like the same kind of logic, like, yeah, you are. You know, you're still there. God's still there. He still cares about me. But I guess I didn't understand our relationship very well or your relationship with humans. Mm -hmm. So I'm noticing a, a, a slight difference then. You both approached it differently in that way, whereas for for you, Chase, you went down the rabbit hole. One thing, all your no your dominoes knocked over, whereas for you, you you kept God. That wasn't necessarily in question. No, it was never in question, but I was definitely had to figure out who God was to me because I had always prayed my whole life to the same God that my dad worshiped. But all of a sudden that guy is telling my dad to cheat on my mom and to make really reckless, stupid decisions. And all of a sudden he's praying all day to this God and this God is telling him that an angel is going to come along and lead him to a hole full of money. And I was like, so I guess you're not that person that I thought you were. So let's figure out who you are to me. And, and that's why I think I'm pretty careful, I guess these days about saying that God is anything <laughs> that God has these traits or qualities, because I think that 
each individual sort of defines God for themselves in a way that is comforting and, and, and reassuring to them, which is why I, I don't rush to say that my dad's relationship with God is completely bunk because he's doing the same as I am. He's come up with someone who's comforting and, and reassuring and, um, safe. And I don't, I can't, I can't, I, I simply cannot deny him that because I wouldn't, I wouldn't want anyone to deny, deny me that. And if that makes sense. And so while I don't believe that the things he came up with, you know, with his relationship with God, I, I think that so much of our relationship with God is a reflection of who we are and our desires and our, and who, you know, I just, you know, to me that does, there's no conflict there that yes, he can have this relationship with God and, and it can be this, but it's because he's interpreting it. He's in charge of defining it. And so it's out there. It's crazy, but it is real to him. And so it's not real to me though. It's, it has nothing to do with me anyway. Um, back to how, how do you react to that? What she just said, Chase? I, I, uh, I agree with it. It, uh, my experience was that I had to, I had to start from scratch. Like you said, my dominoes were knocked over. I had to find out whether I thought God existed at all in any form to anyone. Um, well, to me in particular. Uh, and so that consisted of what I called my, my sheepskin on the porch experience. I, I was very stressed at the time at work and had some very difficult uh, projects to overcome that were very, very, very pressing and very difficult. And I decided to use that as my prove me now herewith moment and, and, uh, and make God prove himself. If he existed at all, he had to show me. And so I had an impossible project that had to be accomplished within a day. And I, I gave it to God. I prayed for the first time in a couple of months. Um, and very, probably the most awkward prayer I've ever had because I didn't know if who I was talking to was even existent. Like I, it was the wildest experience, but I had remembered the story and I think it was Elijah had, um, had, said, okay, God, if you're really there, I'm putting this sheepskin out. And if it's, if the ground is dry in the morning, but it is wet, I'll know you're real. And he did that and it happened. And then he tried it again and said, okay, now if the ground is wet and the sheepskin is dry, then I'll know you're real. And I did just that two separate tests (laughs) that both came through exactly as I needed them to within the exact time frame I needed them to. And granted, some people could say that's still just coincidence or, or good luck or whatever it may be. I felt that I had specifically asked for something and it specifically happened just the way I asked it to. And that God had indeed proven to me that he existed. Then it was up to me to find out, as my wife said, what my relationship with God was and, and how I was going to interact with him. Um, and, and how I would proceed from there. And, um, I was still working through that as we came to visit the bishop. Um, 
I was still not entirely sure of how my relationship with God was going to proceed and, and what it would consist of. And so I thought our conversation with the bishop and, and us explaining ourselves and either that would go in a direction of, you know, we would become the ward project and, and the bishop would, you know, maybe. And maybe we are. Yeah, maybe we are. Who knows? Um, but, but I didn't know where it was going to go and, and what turn that would take. And ultimately the bishop kind of surprised us by not only accept. Sorry. Oh. The first thing he said was, well, you're not alone. <laughs> he yeah. said, there are so many people out there who share your concerns yeah. and your doubts. And he said, including myself to a certain extent. And those words, I think I would have loved to have seen our faces. At that <laughs> I moment. Know, I we probably look pretty shell shocked, but not just you're not alone. And I feel the same way. Not but, about everything, but, you know, right, I hear you. Yeah, Basically, exactly. he was saying, I hear you. But also, just a kind of, it, almost like a pat on the back, like, good job. that You're you're spiritually maturing. And it was kind of a shock. Like, what is he trying to tell us? You know what I mean? And And ultimately, as he continued on, he explained that, you know, prophets like bishops or, or whatever are people. And... And it's very difficult sometimes to discern what is prophetic and what is human. And that's okay. And it's up to us to... to Determine to, that for ourselves. Yeah, determine that for ourselves. We talked a lot about the separation of the organization of the church and the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was a big deal. And he said, you know, we talked about things that... I had never really thought of as just being cultural or just being an organizational thing. And it was really great (laughs) to, you know, to hear things from his perspective, which was very much a, we do these things, but I mean, you are entitled to ask questions about everything because some of the things we do, we only do them because of some arbitrary little decision that happened a hundred years ago. Or sometimes it's a matter of lowest common denominator sort of situation. You know, we, we do things so that everyone can be in the same boat, even if all everyone on that boat are in different positions and different times in their life and in their experience and in their spiritual maturation and if everyone on the boat, you know, even if they don't see eye to eye, that's okay too. Um, so basically he just gave us, per- I guess, his permission to feel the way we do and still be acceptable in the LDS culture, which was important to us because we really didn't want to feel like outsiders, but we also knew that there was no going back, that we couldn't stop yeah, feeling the way yeah. we did. And so... At this point, I'm going to just interrupt you really quick. Um, you're, you're talking in terms of, you know, how you felt, but just give me some one word answers if you can. Were there at this point, were there doctrines of the church that you had decided to set aside? Yes. Yes. And doctrines of the church you had decided you wanted to keep? Yes. yes. So you really, at this point, had kind of sorted out 
some things that you wanted to get rid of and the things that you wanted to keep, did you articulate those things to your bishop? Yes. The ones we had worked out, yes, we did. And he was accepting of of what you had to say? I think so, yeah. for the most part, yeah. Um, when it came down to after the visit with the bishop, we then had our temple recommend interviews um, after having discussed all of these things in depth. Um, my wife went first, and uh, in her interview, I was standing outside, of course, and it went for quite some time. I remember wondering, uh-oh, <laughs> I thought we had discussed these things pretty clearly, but maybe maybe there's more that she felt she needed to discuss without me there, and so I was kind of worried. But when she came out, she was happy. It was, um, it had been a good experience and she was able to answer the questions honestly. Even, you know, she had to qualify some of those answers. Well, and we did it together. It, t it was yeah. by far the longest. It was not a matter of yes, 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 no, yes, yes. It was. He would ask the question. Some, some of them were easier to answer than others, but he would ask the question and I would. Pause, <laughs> and we would start talking about the question, and we would come up with an interpretation of it that was satisfactory to me and him. Um, I think ultimately he really wanted me to have my temple recommend. He wanted me to be able to go to the temple because after going to the temple, after not after a time. huge break, it was a very positive experience. It was very peaceful. It was very sweet and i felt incredibly close to god uh, he uh, i think it to him he was like okay well this is a place where you know you need to be and so we we he took the time to go over the questions with me and we discussed them and and i passed the test i guess <laughs> yeah. and when i went it was a similar conversation however um since he had been through it with my wife, he, it was a much shorter process because they had already covered some of the qualifiers to some of those questions that, that we, not that we didn't agree with, but that we, we thought of a little differently than most people. So how crucial was that experience with your bishop? To where you are today, you you go to church today. We do, and for, I believe, and we've discussed this. It was absolutely crucial that acceptance that we received from him, even if he didn't completely see eye to eye with us, which I think he did on many things actually. But but um, he accepted us, and not only he accepted us, but he he helped us feel like we not only we were acceptable to the church organization but also that our doctrinal views and spiritual experiences were part and parcel and, and welcome in the culture, welcome in the church, and not just welcome, but crucial. He called and it that, a spiritual maturity. Yeah, that, that, that people need to experience. And, and I agree. Um, I mean, I I don't think people need to go through it to the extent that we no, have. I wouldn't not. wish that on anyone simply right. because it's painful, it's discombobulating, it's right. not fun. But it feels good because I feel like through this all, what I have is so much 
more real. More meaningful. Yeah. I didn't realize how much of my faith depended on my dad. I mean, I felt like the rug had been ripped out from underneath me, and all of a sudden I was in this trauma, and I, and I thought, how is this possible when I've been claiming spiritual independence for years? <laughs> exactly. You know? And I just, you know, I thought all those years when I was, you know, thinking, oh, well, I'm on my own, I got my faith and it's strong. I thought something like this would not shake me in the slightest. And then it did. And I realized, well, well, you know, I guess I just didn't have what I thought I had. And now, even though my list is short of things that I can say, I believe this, like I could bear a testimony of them. It's a very short list. Um, it is mine. It is my list. And as far as the things that I are in my no pile. Mostly, I'm not going to call it a no pile. I'm going to call it a, I don't know pile. <laughs> it's huge. It's massive. Um, I just have learned throughout all of this process that I don't know anything. And saying that I know something would be a lie because I don't. If I might jump in, um, I feel like Back to drawing comparisons between Joseph Smith and, and, and my father-in-law. My father-in-law did some very bad things that he thought were inspired by God. And again, as my wife said earlier, we can't judge as to whether it was or not, because ultimately that's his relationship with God is up to him. But. And dealing with the consequences is also up to him. Exactly. But, um, that relationship that he has with God and the inspiration or revelations that came from that resulted in a lot of pain, a lot of hurt for quite a few people. But for my wife and I, ultimately, it has resulted in a spiritual growth and stronger relationships with God and with, with Christ and with with each other in many ways because we've had to go through this together and communicate so much about it. We have, have, um, have developed incredibly because of it. And, and so likewise, then the parallel to Joseph Smith, if I might, rather than as I thought before all of this, that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God and, and completely, and that polygamy, while I disagreed with it, it was surely justified somehow, and, and things like that. Perhaps, just perhaps, it's okay for me to feel that Joseph Smith was an adulterous narcissist who did some stupid things, but that, um, that God made the most of it and, and was able to have some good consequences for other people in the long run. Just like, He's doing with the situation we're in. Exactly. Just like my wife and I are stronger coming out of this very difficult experience because of one narcissist. We think that 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 can be the same as a whole for, for people as well. I just want to inject here. I know I'm supposed to be the interviewer, but I, I'm listening to you and forming my own thoughts and sure. feelings as I hear you speak. But... It's, you know, it's occurring to me the first time I read the Old Testament or I attempted to write, read the Old Testament in its entirety was on my mission. 
And I had, a, you know, I had read the stories in seminary, but they're kind of whitewashed, I think. And, um, I guess high school students don't really pay attention to the details <laughs> of the old Testament very well, but it's probably good. Yeah. My mission president told me on my mission, stop reading the old Testament because I kept saying to him, who the heck are these people? I mean, are we really buying into this stuff? I would write him letters and say, are you kidding me? Lot? Question mark. You know, Moses? Question mark. <laughs> are, we believe these men were these prophets of God. Perfect that, example. Yeah. I mean, mass murder and adultery and, I mean, you name it. Genocide. Genocide. Wine bidding. <laughs> Wine bidding. The, the list of sins that the prophets commit in the Old Testament alone. And I, you know, his solution, my mission president's solution at the time was just don't read it. Put it aside. And, you know, address that when you get home. But I, I it's hard to address that. It's... I mean, it's really hard to really truly accept the stories of the Old Testament and reconcile them with my modern day faith. And I think we jump through a lot of hoops doing that. You know, we, to understand the culture of the time, to understand, but translation errors, translation errors, or all sorts of things. Gymnastics. Right. Um, but it seems kind of helpful to just say, yeah, I mean, they were that way. And, and then aside from that, ask the question, do I choose to believe in God? And then who is God to me? And seems ask, more productive. Right. Yeah. And then ask the question, so what, what am I getting out of the Bible that is lifting me up? I think that that was the, Sorry, I'm kind of interrupting. No, you. go ahead. Um, I think that that's the ultimate question is after, after you're like, okay, so these are the facts that this is not white or black. It is gray. It truly is gray. What, 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 what good is it to me? And what, what am I taking away from this? And, um, that is, that's, you know, the phase I'm in right now, this yeah. sorting phase. And it's been incredibly rewarding and good. Um, and, and I think the, the best part is that I really have this exciting, to me, it's very exciting. <laughs> what a word to use idea of judgment and, and Christ and, and how that all plays in. I, I think about my dad and he, he's a screw up. He's ruined his family, his marriage, his career. He's, he's a screw up. Um, and he is being faithful through this all to his God. Um, obviously that's the most important thing to him. And I, who am I to say, Oh, well you idiot. Um, I have plenty of times, believe me, but, <laughs> um, but I am not in a position to, but 
all I can do because I have no control over him is to say, okay, well, God, you and me have a relationship that obviously is important to me because I'm not willing to get rid of it because it has been too influential in my life. It has been too much a force for good. And I love you too much to give you up. And so it has drastically changed the decisions I've made as far as trying to be like Jesus and understanding what, who Jesus is and, and what, what is that, what is who Jesus is mean? What does that mean to my dad? And I think my dad is the way he is because of a whole factor of socioeconomic, emotional, parental, DNA. He's mentally ill. <laughs> you know, like there's a whole list of reasons why he is the way he is. And Christ knows all of those. And so that moment when my dad is standing before Christ, this is, this is not something I know, not something I could say, oh, and I know that this is what's going to happen, but this is something that gives me tremendous comfort and that I am choosing to have faith in because it is the only thing that gives me comfort and it makes a lot of sense. So when my dad is standing at the feet of Jesus and, and Jesus has this whole list sort of memorized or however that works, and on his iPad, maybe he knows, he knows my dad inside and out and, and he has the keys to truly judge my dad as to whether he, what parts of him are good and what parts of him are bad. And, and that feels really good to me to know that my dad is in good hands as far as that goes. And to know that he'll suffer a little bit of hellfire and damnation, you know, as, as the, as maybe the blinders are removed from his eyes and he can see the hurt that he's caused others. And, and imagining this sort of scenario between my father and Jesus, um, has been incredibly influential in the decisions that I make on a day to day basis. Um, my new definition, my new personal definition of God is all things that build up and comfort and nothing that hurts and nothing that abuses. As far as Joseph Smith goes, I have a better and stronger faith in him than I ever had in my entire life because I felt like before I was having to justify so many things that I didn't feel were right in my heart. And now I've sort of forgiven him of those things because I don't feel like they have to be Jesus. of God. I don't feel like they have to be justified. They can just be what they are. And I'm not in a position to judge what they are, but I, except for, for myself. And so was he a prophet? I believe so. Did he create this amazing church that has filled so many people's lives with hope and, and you know, changed the world for the better? Yes, he did. And I believe God helped him do that. Um, did he do a lot of things that make me uncomfortable and um, make me think, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> but I don't have to accept that because just like everyone else, he's entitled to be good and bad at the same time. And, and I, I feel so at peace with my relationship with him. Not that I have one, but you know, my testimony, so, so to speak of him because I have a testimony that he was a man and he was a real man. And that, that, that man was a prophet and that most of the things he did were good 
and brought good and had a positive influence on the world. And the things that were not positive, the things that were hurtful to his family or his people close to him, um, got the best that he could with them, with those things. I think God is a master at, um, making the best of crap situations. <laughs> Chase, do you, have you formed an idea of who God is to you or are you still working on it? I'm definitely still working on it, but, um, but I have formed faith that I feel works for the long term for me. Um, whereas I was before all or nothing as, as discussed previously, um, I'm now very comfortable picking out things that I'm comfortable with that I feel good about that, as my wife said, don't hurt or, or, um, or otherwise abuse, accepting those, loving those, holding on to those, believing those while acting on those, acting on those while not focusing on the other, the, the, the other stuff, the other fluff, the, the cultural items, the, um, things that I don't feel are important. I'm okay with not believing in things, in certain things, while accepting other parts. Um, if I may, without being blasphemous, talk about one of my favorite things that I've given up, uh, is the idea that I need to, uh, share the church with other people. Um, and I'll elaborate. There are parts of me that I feel well, let me back up. I think liberating myself from the idea that I need to constantly be thinking of a strategy of how to spring the gospel on somebody <laughs> um, has given me uh, sort of this. There was always in my prior life, there was this underlying anxiety um, with any interaction with spirituality outside of the church, if that makes sense. So other people, other faiths and uh, encounter with God or their spiritual experiences, um, even music or other churchy stuff that was not Mormon was weird and foreign and gave me sort of this underlying <laughs> tenseness like this. And that's gone. It's so nice to feel at ease with other people's worship of God and feel this huge feeling of love and acceptance of all mankind's version of God, even if they don't have a version of God, even if their version of God is no God. So what, um, let me just articulate it in my way. And then you can tell me if I'm understanding you right, but you have decided that it is not productive to define how everybody sees God, but that all you can do is live according to how you see God and how you experience God. And that that is the sphere of influence and effectiveness in your own life. Is that right? Absolutely. That's well said. <laughs> I think that if you have a definition of God and what is right and what is wrong, then it's not worth anything unless you live up to it, which is very new for me. Even though I grew up this staunchly religious person, 
I didn't do half of the things I believed I was supposed to for some reason or other inconvenience or thinking it was okay if I didn't or whatever. I don't know, but I've never lived the commandments more than since this whole thing has happened. Ironically, when it, you know, I'm, I'm not holding myself. I'm, I don't feel any obligation to do it, if that makes sense. So it is, it is, I just feel that it's the right thing to do. And so now all of a sudden when I feel like there's no pressure, I certainly don't feel that God, it is important to God or, you know, that I do my visiting teaching every month, for instance, example, I don't think, you know, it's important to God. And I don't feel like it's even that important, even to the numbers of the church or whatever. And I don't care about that anyway, but all of a sudden I want to do my visiting teaching because I feel like it's a cool thing that there's this program already in place in this religion that I've been a part of my entire life that I've sort of taken for granted and found a good thing, but kind of a nuisance. All of a sudden I'm like, Hey, wow. Visiting teaching. That's crazy cool. It's so Christ-like. You, you, you go out on a limb and you, and you make friends with someone who you wouldn't otherwise. And it's just random. I mean, you're just sort of mixed together and you don't know who you're going to get. That's cool too, because you're going to end up having conversations with and making, forging relationships with people that you don't know and you wouldn't naturally get to know otherwise. That's really neat. I want to do that. I feel like that's a really worthwhile and Christ-like thing to do. And so all of a sudden I'm doing my visiting teaching like I've never done it before. And with love, genuine love for women that I don't know. And it, and I am saying this in as much shock as I think anyone who might hear this would. It surprises me too. Because gone is any obligation to do it or any, oh, I should have, or any guilt when I see them if I, you know... How I didn't get in there and visit them because I feel like I'm doing it because I want to. And, and that changes everything somehow. The, the duties rather than being motivated by those duties and those things that were expected to do and, and, and that were required to do by the church or whatever, being motivated by just what we feel is right and what, what, just what feels good and what what we feel would be good to do for someone else. That's just automatically built in. Like like my wife said, it just gives you a good, satisfied feeling, which to me is is proof. It's it's um a testament. It's testimony. It's it's it shows that that practicing that faith in that way, motivated by love is right and it is Christ-like and it is good. So we're, we're kind of short on time. So I want to ask a few just short questions. So do you see yourselves as Mormon for the long haul? Of course, I know you can't predict your whole lives, but from at the, at this point, I do. I, I feel like, um, the church as an organization has recently been doing a bit better at, at accepting individuality and, and focusing a little bit less on the organizational standpoint and the organization as a whole. Um, 
a long way to go before I feel completely comfortable. But, um, but yes, I, I, I do. I do too. And I'm excited to see what that means. Um, for us, I think it's going to be an ever changing definition of being Mormon. Mm. I mean, what that means for us, you know, like right now, what makes me Mormon as opposed to just a religious person who believes in Christ and God, um, I would say it would be those, those little things like visiting teaching that I have tremendous love and faith in. There are these wonderful programs that are set up and I'm very familiar with them. And I know how they work and how they bless and tithing and, and all these other things that I feel are very powerful spiritual, um, actions or, or rituals uh, and temple attendance. Uh, there's so many things that are built into this religion that I really love that help me with my spirituality. They help me with my Christianity and I'm very familiar with them. And so, um, to me, that's what, you know, is the take home. Why Mormonism, you know, is, is because, well, there's, there's so much good in the organization and in the people as well. Um, so yeah, I, I do see us staying with the church, um, because it works. It's very compatible with the kind of lifestyle we want to live. The, the, that we have found has been effective for us. And I, like I said, I'm really excited to see how that will change. I mean, you know, we're young yeah. and, and I think part of being a Mormon is having to roll with the punches <laughs> and, and the whole idea of modern revelation means you're dealing with a church that is in an ever evolving state towards a, a, a greater ideal, uh, closer to the ideal. I don't, you know, I'm not one to define right, but one that is more compatible with what's in my heart. And, and so, so far, yeah, so far, so good. Yeah. I, if I could add to that, some of those things that my wife mentioned, like the programs, the visiting, teaching, the tithing type of things, while we feel right now that we're more accepting of those things and more happy about those things, and they are reasons for us to stay with the church, we also recognize that for people going through similar experiences to what we've been through, those things can become big hang-ups, very big hang-ups, um, such that it, it becomes, well, that's all the church is, is these programs that, that people do culturally and, and it's not even, if they're not doing what Christ would want them to do, they're just doing these duties to check it off a list or whatever it is. Um, and so we acknowledge that there are two sides to that coin that could go either direction, depending on, on your perspective and outlook and, and the way you, choose to to handle it and and experience and experience it yeah um sorry and also uh the the church as a whole as my wife mentioned the the ever-changing ever-evolving that's what we are we we our beliefs our our thought processes our our faith in god and our understanding of god and um and the religion as a whole should be ever changing, ever evolving. They, when, when they become stagnant, that's when we start to run into trouble, I feel like. So.
Okay, so to date, what is the greatest good you have received from being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? I would not even know where to begin. I would say my marriage, my, my, I mean, you know, not to say that the church gave me my wife, but the church gave me experiences and training such that I could have such a wonderful experience with my wife. I wouldn't have had you if you hadn't gone on a mission. That's, oh, I see. Yes, yeah, so I'm moving that right <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, that was a good answer. <laughs> I think so. Bonus points. I would say comfort in the idea of thinking big. Comfort in the idea of believing that your marriage could go on forever. Comfort in, in, the, in the idea that you could matter so much to God. That the things you do have a huge effect on others. I guess that would probably maybe be the same answer my dad might give you. But I think it means something different coming from, you know, Those different the, perspectives. the two of us. And I, I think for me, I guess, yeah, that the idea that it's more than just this life. And so, and, and, and not only is it more than just this life, but what we do does matter and that you have to make conscientious decisions and, and proceed with caution and not be careless or just bluster through life or, or do go through the motions. I think that it matters to God and it, it should matter to us. Thank you. I really have enjoyed sitting and listening to your experiences and your stories. And, um, I am so thrilled that you did this podcast for a thoughtful faith. Um, this is Sarah Colette, and we hope that you've enjoyed this time that we've spent together, and we hope that it has encouraged um, your faith in any way that it might. And um, that's all. Thank you very much for being here with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com.
See you.